How's everybody doing today? Praise God. Uh, what a privilege and an honor it is to be here um, to share God's Word with us today and to um, speak about something that is very dear to my heart. Um, during the last years of my walk with God, I've had to readjust certain things in my life as I've drawn closer to Him and, and gotten convicted over a few things. The Lord has been speaking to me uh, more and more about the things that I do or shouldn't do and the things that I partake of that, shouldn't, that I shouldn't be partaking of. Um, and this is what I want to share with us this morning. I want to talk to us um, something that might be very challenging and might be confrontational, but what I feel is the truth of God's Word. God, God left us His Word as a guide for life. Amen? It is the most important book in my life. It is the most important document to exist, more important than the Constitution of the United States, more important than the Declaration of Independence. It is the document that guides us throughout life. Amen? And if the whole world were to go kaput and we were only left with the Bible, we would surely survive. Amen? So I have a scripture for today, and it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. And it says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. Amen. In us. He will dwell inside of us. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. That's a very important word here. Separate is aphorizo in the Greek. And it's the mark to mark off by boundaries and to set apart. That's what God is asking us to do, to be set apart. And do not touch what is unclean. And unclean is akathartos, is in the Greek also. It's, it's to be unclean in thought and in life. Benson Commentary says to keep at the utmost distance from every person or thing whereby you might be drawn to evil. Amen? So stay away from the things that will draw you to evil. And I will, and I will welcome you after you do these things, he says. And verse 18 says, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the almighty God. Amen. In other words, prerequisites for the blessing. Certain things have to take place in order for him to be a father to us and for us to be daughters and sons to him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've left, you've left us, um, Incredible guidance and incredible instructions to warn us and to keep us and to protect us. And this morning, I pray just as Pastor Al prayed, Father, that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to our hearts. Father, I pray that I would be able to step aside and that you would be the voice speaking here today. Lord, remove my flesh, remove my mind, remove everything of me, Father, that would interfere with the communication of your word, Father. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Praise God. Happy to be here. Trisha and I have been away. We've had some things happening in our family with someone who has been in the hospital that was um, very ill with cancer. And 
That's why I missed the first week. Last week we were at Bayshore at another church preaching, not visiting another church. I don't go anywhere just so you know. This is my home church, amen? I love my church. I love, I truly love my church. Um, I have a book that I want to recommend to you guys before we go on with this message. I have two books, actually. The first one is called Intoxicated with Babylon, and it's written by Steve Gallagher. And the second book is The Daniel Dilemma. Um, the Daniel Dilemma is written by Chris Hodges, and the subtitle of it is How to Stand Firm and Love Well in a Culture of Compromise. Amen. I recommend this reading for all of us, in, along with a... Um, Intoxicated with Babylon. My brain got stuck there for a minute. Amen. So today we're going to talk about our moral compass or moral values. And the title of my message today is The Breaking of Our Moral Compass. The Breaking of Our Moral Compass. The Seduction of Modern Society and Thinkers. And another title could be Objective versus Subjective Morality. So today we're going to talk about our moral compass or values and how modern secular leaders have influenced the church and society into changing standards that God has established to help keep us safe, holy, and sanctified. Today we will discover and talk about three compass truths. Number one, what is our moral compass? Number two, how can we break or disalign our moral compass? Number three, how can society influence our moral compass? And number four, how can we fix our moral compass once it's disaligned? When God created the world, he established moral values or boundaries that are clearly spelled out in God's Word. However, throughout our planet's existence, we find that humanity is constantly adjusting or moving these values and replacing them with man-made ideas that do not line up with the Word of God. We just have to read the book of Daniel or all the way back to the book of Genesis so that we can find from the very beginning how mankind has consistently tried changing boundaries and doing things differently than what God had originally commanded us to do. We find that in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Do not eat of the fruit uh, of the tree of the fruit of life. Um, do not eat of the tree of the fruit of life. Um, and what happens to Adam and Eve? They disobey. Amen? Of good and evil, I think, was the first tree. Of good and evil. The second one, he removed them from the garden so that they wouldn't live forever in sin. The second time you see in the book of Genesis that um, a brother kills another brother. So constantly, in throughout the Bible, you see a history of mankind constantly changing and adjusting their way of doing things to other than what God had created them to do. So they were just being rebellious in their way. And we, as humans, are, are having, have a rebellious nature within us. We are born as rebellious creatures. We always try to constantly have our way versus God's way. Moral is defined by Webster as as of or relating to principles of right and wrong behavior. Values are the worth of importance of something. Moral values are defined as the standards of good and evil which govern an individual's behavior and choices. Amen? Individual morals may derive from society, government, religion, or self. When moral values derive from society and government, they of necessity may change as the laws and morals of society change. Amen? So what happens is, as you go along with society, things change and evolve. An example of the impact of changing laws on moral values may be seen in the case of marriage versus living together. Um, as you know, it used to be not well seen that two people that were not married lived together. 
And as you see recently in the last couple of, I would say the last decade or two decades, it is an acceptable practice that two people live together to figure each other out before they actually get married. So we've started just accepting that behavior as if it was normal. Homosexuality was considered a crime. Later it gained the status, and listen to this, of mental disease. Back in the day, if you were homosexual, you were considered to be mentally disabled. Nowadays, it's assimilated by moral sense as an, accept, as an accepted feature of individuals. I am not claiming that people that are homosexuals are mentally disabled. I'm saying that this is what society labeled them, uh, labeled them as back in, back in the early 50s, I believe it was, or the 40s. Individuals used to be considered mentally disabled if their behavior was different than socially accepted conver- conventions. They would be committed to institutions, banned from social contact, and left to die. They were even giving electric shock treatment if they were different than we were. When my wife showed me a picture of her great-grandfather living in the water out out Nassau County somewhere, I forgot what town that was. Where? Island Park. And there's a picture, a black and white picture, of a family and a child with a bag over their head. And I said, what, what's the bag over the head thing? It was the kid was a mongoloid or he had, um, he had features that weren't acceptable to, to society. So the parents would bring him out with a bag over her. That was accepted back then. Society said that that was okay to do. Therefore, if your child looked differently, we'll put a bag over his head and everybody's okay with it. But obviously that evolved and changed and now we accept people the way they are. Have you noticed lately that movie ratings don't seem to match up with what you're watching? And if you've been watching movies lately, you'll know what I'm talking about. In other words, PG and PG-13 movies seem more tolerant of cursing, nudity, and violence. So I did some research on this because I was watching a movie one day. And I told my wife, man, is this movie 13? And, and I started figuring out that something's happening with the ratings then. And guess what? A study from the Harvard School of Public Health found that decades of ratings creep has allowed more violent and sexually explicit content into films suggesting that movie raiders have grown more lenient of their standards. Amen? I found that a movie rated PG, it found, I'm sorry, that a movie rated PG or or PG-13 today has more sexual or violent content than similarly rated movies in the past. But But he and others point out that the standards for judging acceptable depictions of sex and violence in American society were constantly changing or evolving and that it would not be surprising if that changed for movie ratings as well. The study of 1906 films between 1992 and 2003 found more violence and sex in PG movies and more of those elements in profanity in PG-13 movies. It also found more sex and profanity in our movies which are the, than a decade ago. So in just 10 years, you see the increase of violent sex and other activities in movies if the rating system not moving along with it. When you look at the average PG-13 movie today, it's approaching an R-rated movie, what an R-rated movie looked like in 1992. So that's why we at Teen Challenge have a policy that we don't watch any movie that's above PG-13. It used to be PG-13. And now we have to screen the films that are PG-13 because there are things in them that we just find are unacceptable for people to consume, especially people that are being discipled. In 1992, that's what, that's what the R rating system was like. This is what Kimberly Johnson said, associate professor of risk analysis and decision science at Harvard School of Public Health. Heath is also the the co-author of the study. Today's PG is approaching PG-13 a decade ago. 
Has anybody seen Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker? Amen? Great movie, right? Until it gets to the end, it blew it for me. If you notice at the end of the movie, there was something inserted. Does anybody notice what happened at the end of the movie? When they were celebrating, you did. Okay, maybe you know what I'm talking about then. Well, in case you missed it, there were two girls kissing when the Resistance fleet returned to the jungle move of Ajon Kloss. Right? Everybody remember seeing that scene? So at the end of the movie, a star is right there in the middle of the screen. The producer sent a compass-breaking message. A compass-breaking message is a message that is designed to tweak your compass, your moral compass. Amen? That what they did was they said it was okay for two girls to kiss each other. Never had Star Wars ever engaged in putting a homosexual scene on the big screen. The psychology behind this, if you study it, and if you understand what's happening maybe in the spiritual realm, is that this scene was projected to us during a celebration of sorts because they had just won this incredible battle. It wasn't placed during a battle scene where people were dying. It wasn't placed in a, in a dark, uh, intimate setting where it might have looked too too intimate. It was placed specifically and uniquely during a celebration scene so as to make it appear like it's acceptable and fun to be like that. This is what society is doing to brainwash our people and to adjust our moral compass so that we can be tolerant of this type of behavior and align ourselves with it. They are indoctrinating and recalibrating our compass. The reason I believe moral values are constantly changing is because people have set aside the true God for life. And that's the word of God. In an effort to be accepted and tolerated by society, we do what feels right versus what is right. We find that of the many schools of thought that are out there, moral values come from two that are mostly accepted, and they are subjective or objective moral values. The principle of subjective moral value states that morality is based on the idea that there is no such thing as absolute right or wrong. Each person and each society can determine its own standards of right and wrong. In other words, its own morality. You get to choose to do what you feel is right. Another way of saying this is that our surroundings in society will dictate or subject us to its moral values. They dictate what is right and what is wrong. We just follow suit and fall into place. And some examples of this are Roe versus Wade when they legalized abortion, Engel versus Vitali when they removed prayer from schools, the Madeline O'Hare decision, and boys using girls' bathrooms, as you know, that's a commonly accepted practice. Before, back when I was growing up in the 60s or 70s, I wasn't even allowed to play with dolls because my parents would correct me very firmly on that. And you might say, well, you're going too far. Well, I'm telling you this because I want you to understand where I'm going with this from the root of it. Society is trying to change our value system and get us to go along with it. And they've done that, and we can see in society how this has happened. People are just doing what other people tell them. Society allowed abortions to be made legal because someone convinced them that it was okay, so they just went along with it. William Lane Craig states that objective moral values, on the other hand, are independent of people's, including one's own opinion. They are established by God and should never be changed. In contrast, subjective means just a matter of personal opinion. If we do have objective moral values, then the various circumstances in which we find ourselves, we are obligated or forbidden 
to do various actions, regardless of how we feel or think. Amen? If we have objective moral values, we are obligated to submit to them, regardless of how we feel or think. The opposite of me, of me being subjected to you, or vice versa. So I don't subject myself to someone telling me what's right or wrong. The value system should be that you, you subject yourself to God and Him be the object of what's right or wrong. Amen? He's the object of our values. Us being subjected to Him. That's why this is important. Why is this important, you might ask? Because God never changes. What was wrong yesterday is wrong today and will be wrong tomorrow. What was right yesterday is right today and will be right tomorrow. Hebrews 13.8 states, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6 says, for the Lord does not change. James 1.17 says, every good thing given and every good perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. Isaiah 48 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Subjective moral values are what people use to convince us that we evolved from apes. So the question then is, when did apes start holding each other accountable for killing one another? Because you know that, that monkeys kill each other when they're mating, a certain species of them do. Or when they're trying to, and, and animals for the most part, male usually kill each other or try to defend their territory. So when did apes start saying, hey man, you shouldn't be killing someone? It's wrong. Because that was a part of the evolution process also. Well, that should have been a part of it, right? If not, then where did we learn this practice of accountability? Did it evolve within us? Somehow and somewhere along the way, we decided that it's okay to move the lines. This behavior of testing boundaries and moving moral guidelines starts at a very young age. Philosophy.org says it this way. Moral values also derive from within one's own self. This is clearly demonstrated in the behavior of older infants and young toddlers. If a child has been forbidden to touch or take certain objects early on, they will know to slowly look over their shoulder to see if they are being observed before touching said object. Amen. And you see, all those of us that have had kids... And those of us that were children, I think we all were children. We used to always be sneaky about things, right? Nobody taught us that. We learned that it's inherently within us. There is no need for this behavior to be taught. It is instinctive. Once, however, any form of discipline is applied to modify the child's behavior, the child now gains capacity within himself to distinguish between right and wrong. Now the child can make correct choices based on his or her own knowledge. The choices that are made are by an individual from childhood to adulthood are between forbidden and acceptable, kind or cruel, generous or selfish. A person may, under any given set of circumstances, decide to do what is forbidden. If this individual possesses moral values, going against them usually produces guilt. And I would add that in Christians it produces um, conviction. Amen. There's a difference between being guilty and feeling convicted. Christ paid for all of our guilt on the cross. Therefore, we're not guilty of anything once we've surrendered to him. Conviction is the Holy Spirit speaking to you saying, hey, what you're about to do or what you're doing is wrong. It's God speaking to you. Knowing God and his word, not just letting someone else preach it to you, and understanding what he's telling us will allow us to maintain a moral compass that is set on heaven and the things of God. 
Just like the child learned from hearing the voice of his parents, we also must learn how to hear God's word, hear his voice, so that we can make daily decisions that will bring glory to God. There are many things that we can do to help keep our moral compass properly calibrated and preserve a Christian lifestyle that glorifies God. And most of us have a GPS on our phone or in our car. And if you've ever, have you ever seen the feature that lets you calibrate the GPS? <clears throat> you take the phone and you move it in a figure eight in the air. And if it's your car to calibrate the, the GPS in your car, you drive in a figure eight until the GPS in your car gets calibrated. Why is that? Because you've driven around and you've moved around in so many different directions that the GPS has to calibrate itself and align itself with the true north. Amen. The same thing has to happen in our lives, and I'm going to give ourselves some guidelines as what we can do to calibrate our moral GPS so that we can continue to walk the way God has act, um, um, the way God has created us to walk. The first thing we can do to calibrate our moral GPS is that we should be in the Word of God daily, often, and frequently. Amen. This daily interaction with scriptures will keep us fine-tuned to the heart and voice of God. It is his manual for our lives. By reading and meditating on it, we can learn what the heart of God is for our lives. And many of us here that have been reading our word for many years, you'll know that there are certain things that you just don't do because you know the word of God says you can't do it. The Ten Commandments are the simple ones. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or stuff, right? All the ten of them. Can't get the ten of them in my head right now. But we know that we submit to those because it's in God's word. There are other things in God's word that he will speak to you and convict you of so that when the time comes to not pay your taxes, amen, the Holy Spirit will tell you, hey, it's time to pay your taxes because the Bible says give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Amen. So when you try justifying not paying your taxes or cheating on your taxes because the accountant says, well, if we do it this way, we can get away with it. Now, I'm not talking about doing it in a way that's legal that you can get away with, because George might help me with that maybe one day, right? Because <laughs> there are legal things that you can do, and I, and I totally agree with those. But there are things that you shouldn't do to get away with not paying taxes. Your, 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 your conviction, the Holy Spirit tells you that. There are things that you know you don't do to speak a particular way, to interact with another human being in a particular way. All of those things that you don't do that demonstrates acts of kindness and love towards your neighbor. That shows you that what's the, the Holy Spirit speaks to you through his word, what's right and what's wrong. The second thing you can do is to pray frequently. This interaction allows us to recognize God and his attributes. Praying strengthens our faith and in turn solidifies our convictions that should be God-inspired. Praying will allow you to hear God's voice when we are about to do something wrong or make a wrong decision. It is one of the ways that we get to learn to listen to God and hear him. And at Teen Challenge, we have an, a, a, a discipleship program that teaches us to get up every day and pray. So we do three things a day at Teen Challenge. We pray three times a day. We pray at 6 o'clock in the morning, at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, and right before bedtime at around 9 o'clock. Why? Because we want our students to learn one thing. It's not to learn the, the 15 fundamental proofs of a particular denomination. It's not to learn what you feel or how you feel. It's not to figure out why you wound up on drugs. It's not to know why you sin. It's to learn how to have a relationship with God. Because it is that relationship with God that will keep you throughout the rest of your life. 
It is learning to talk to God. It is learning to read about God. It is learning to hear God. It is learning to ask of God. It is learning to intercede for others. It is learning to take the time and just sit there and wait for God to speak, maybe. And this is one of the most vital things we can do as Christians, is to have that time with the Lord by ourselves, whatever time of day it is for you. If it's in the morning, if it's in the afternoon, if it's at night, whatever works for you. For me, it works in the morning because once my brain wakes up, it's hard for me to focus. Some of the ADD stuff still sticks with me. So I get distracted very easily. So I know that I got to get into my chair early in the morning. And that's my time. And Trish knows it. That's why I go to my prayer room and I just sit there and I pray, I study, I do whatever I'm going to do. That has to do with me talking to God. And I encourage all of us this morning. If you don't have a devotional life, take five minutes out in the morning and find a place separate from your kitchen table with a cup of coffee and find a place or anywhere you can. I don't want to, I'm not trying to make it sound like I'm legalistic. Find a place that you can just sit there and take a deep breath and say, Lord, speak to me and tell him how you feel. Tell him what you're going through. Maybe communicate with him because he's daddy. And if you know, daddy wants to talk to his kids. Daddy wants to have an incredible relationship with us. Sometimes we're going so fast and we're so busy that we don't stop to talk to daddy. So how can we listen to daddy when he's speaking to us if we don't identify the voice of God when he's talking to us? I gave the example once of a child in the playground. When the child is in the playground, there's hundreds of kids in there. When that child falls and gets hurt, the parent is on the other side of the park. But guess what? Out of all those kids screaming... The parent recognizes the voice of the child. And the parents are over there talking kitchen and washing the car. If it's men, they're talking about men stuff. If it's women, they're talking about women stuff. While the kids play. But while you're distracted talking, you hear that voice and you wake up and say, something happened to my child. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Amen? And if you're a child and you're at an amusement park where there's hundreds of noises going on and you hear your parent call for you, you know it's your parent. Right, kids? You know when it's your parent. Because it has that tone, it has that calibrated, it has that tune in it. So in the, amongst the noise that you hear around your life, you hear and recognize the audible voice of your parent. Why? Because you've been trained to listen to it from when you were a child, your mother held you against her breast, she fed you, she cared for you, she changed your diaper, she told you she loved you, she did everything for you. It was a, it was a smell, it was the touch, it was the love, it was the healing, it was the, the encouragement, it was the, the times when you were down. All of that interaction throughout your life has brought you to an incredible relationship with your parents that it created and developed a form of communication that's intimate to both of you. And you guys know what I'm talking about. Those of us that have good relations with the parents. Some of us might not have. I had a weird one with my parents because I was disciplined a lot. But then I learned how to relate with them and how to connect with them. But believe it or not, it was that relationship with my parents that allowed me to understand who God really was in my life. So all of that to say that the more you talk to God, the more you recognize God, the more you'll hear God, the more you'll obey God, the more you'll do what God is asking you to do, the less chances you have of allowing your moral compass to be broken by what somebody else tells you is right or wrong. Practice acts of kindness. Kindness is really the fulfillment of scriptures in our lives to love thy neighbor. So when you practice an act of kindness, you're actually calibrating your compass. 
You're actually doing something to it because you're doing what God has asked you to do, which is to love your neighbor, to be patient, to be kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. That's a good one, right? Keeps no records of wrong. How many of us said, oh, I forgive you, but you keep that record in the back of your mind? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. Those are the characteristics of a good compass. You know your compass is lined up properly when you can see all of these things working in your life. And yes, we will mess up every now and then. But when you mess up, take the time out to recalibrate your compass. If you mess up on any of these values, it doesn't mean that you're going to go to hell. It takes a lot for us to really mess this thing up and, and get it wrong, guys. Because all it takes is one act of repentance and God once again embraces you and says, let's move on and tweak that compass again and keep walking with the Lord. Number three, stop comparing or measuring yourself against others. Sometimes we hear people say, well, I'm not as bad as this person. Well, I'm not as bad as I used to be. I thank the Lord I'm not as bad as I used to be because I, I, was, I, was, I was really out there. And I can still go out there if I allow myself to be taken. You will always find someone who has less moral values than you do. You will always find someone who has less moral values than you do. There was a movie back in the 60s or 70s, and I might be aging myself now, but I'll just tell you I'm 52. Trish says I'm 54, I think. Um, It was called Serpico. Now, I watched this movie on TV. I don't know what the rating of it is. Amen. It's a cop movie with Al Pacino, I think. Um, where he played a good cop and there were a whole bunch of bad cops. Amen? And all the bad cops were doing what the other bad cops were doing. They were just doing it because it was acceptable amongst the culture. But there was this one guy who didn't agree with what was happening, and he he fought the system, and he went outside of the system, and he did what was morally right, what was ethical, what he thought was right. And when we do, it's going to take a lot of courage, folks, to go against the system. If you're at work and, you're cu- and your friend is stealing toilet paper, and they're saying, well, why aren't you doing it? Everybody else is doing it. They're making fun of you for not doing it. Has anybody ever been made fun of for doing what's right when you know it's wrong? When you know that what they're doing is wrong? This is the way the culture breaks our compass. This is the way the culture makes us feel rejected. So everybody else does it. Here's a little bit of weed. Why don't you just smoke some of it? Oh, you're different. Oh, Mary's funny. She doesn't want to participate. She doesn't know how to have fun. So they make Mary feel like an outcast. And now Mary has no friends in school. So what does Mary start doing? Mary starts recalibrating her compass and letting it break, for example, and starts doing what they're doing just so that she can be accepted in culture and society. But if Mary had an interaction with God, a relationship with God, she would know that, hey, none of the stuff that you're going to offer me, none of that glamour and friendship and feelings you're going to temporarily give me are going to satisfy me the way my relationship with God is. Therefore, you can reject me, but I understand one thing. God has accepted me. And this is where we need to get as a, as, as Christians. We need to not allow the pressure of society, the pressure of our family. My family makes fun of me every time they're with me. Here comes Father Ray. This is what they call me. Because they knew, my family knew what I was up to when I was, before I got saved. And here comes Father Ray. He's so holy. He's so holy. And they make fun of me and they drink and they start provoking me and pushing me in. But they're doing it like in a, in a fun way, I say. Um, cause Dominicans have this way 
of, <laughs> of doing things that are a little bit sarcastic, and I guess I'm that way too sometimes. And, and they start doing things and, and making fun of me. And, and I could say, well, you know what? I'm just going to go along with it. What the heck, man? It's just family. Why not? But I can't. Because I've developed a system of values that don't allow me to go along with them. That tell me that even though they think they're having fun, they're really not having fun because they're not having an intimate relationship with Christ. That to me is having fun. It's waking up in the morning and knowing that my conscience is clear enough that I can sit before God and I can talk to him. And even if I'm going through the deepest of valleys, even though I'm walking through all of the pain, that he will move my mountain. I trust him enough to do that. And I, and I respect him enough and honor him enough to not allow somebody else to dictate to me what's right and wrong. So we, the, that's actually the fifth thing is that do not allow others, especially secular people, to dictate what's right or wrong. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Don't allow others to tell you what to do and what not to do. You get into your word and you tell yourself, what am I going to believe? Am I going to believe what they're telling me or am I going to believe what God's word is um, teaching me? Another one is to attend a church like this. It's a full gospel preaching church. Some churches today don't preach about hell. Some churches today only preach about prosperity. They only want you to think that you're going to get rich, and if you're not rich, then it's a sign of sin in your life. And if you're living in poverty, then there's something wrong with you, and you're in sin. I actually attended a church where they took a scripture out of Job out of context and told people that if they were poor, that they were sinners, and therefore something was wrong with them. Then we have all of these people in all of these parts of the world that are living in extreme poverty who are all sinners, I guess, and actually go to church and are saved. It's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work out that way. The, we need to submit ourselves to the full, the full context of God's word. God talks about heaven in a glorious and graceful way. God also talks about hell. And it's his mercy that teaches us what hell is. It is because he is merciful to us that he speaks to us about the consequences of not submitting to a holy God. The consequences of taking your compass and just breaking it up and doing whatever you feel is right for you to do. The consequences of us allowing society to roll us and push us in the direction that they think we should go in. Some scriptures for us to read when we go home is found in 2 Kings chapter 21. That's a good um, scripture to read because in this Scripture, you have the king Manasseh, who, who was a king and he, and the people in society, he, he seduced all of the people to do what he thought was right or what he wanted to do. If you read the book of Daniel also, remember Nebuchadnezzar erected an idol, a, a statue, and he wanted everybody to bow down to it. He told everybody, this is what you do. If you don't bow down to this, off with your head or you go to the fire. Everybody remember that story? And this is society telling people what they should do. But what did Daniel do? What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They resisted the culture of that time. They resisted the false teaching. And they said, no, we'd rather die for doing what's right than bow down to this idol and lose our relationship with God. And when they didn't bow down, the three guys were thrown into the fire. God saved them in the fire. When Daniel didn't, um, what did Daniel not do? Daniel didn't do something. Oh, he was praying. That's right. They told him, you can't pray. And Daniel's praying. 
He says, I got to keep praying. So Daniel goes and he prays and somebody tells on him. He's praying. And they throw him into the lion's den. And guess what? The lion falls asleep like a kitty cat. And the same thing will happen with us. When we line ourselves up with God's word, and the world and the pressures of the world are coming at us, telling us, do it this way, because it'll feel better, it'll look better, and you'll be embraced by more people. Popularity is only good here on earth. Popularity will not work in heaven. We are the most popular beings for God because he died for us. He demonstrated his great act of love by coming to earth and dying for our sins. None of our friends, none of our bosses, none of our political leaders, none of anybody on this land will be able to do what Christ did for us. Therefore, I encourage all of us today, all of us I encourage, get in our word, follow the teachings of God, and let him guide you along this planet. Because there is so much coming at us. The youth of today, I, I, I pray for you all the time. Because I see what's coming down here in music. I see what's happening on TV. I see what's happening in culture and society. And it's a demoralization of everything. Everything becomes sexual. Everything becomes um, corrupt. Everything becomes vulgar. Everything. I know kids that go to school. I've heard of children in, 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 in kindergarten who are watching, or in first and second grade, I'm sorry, who have cell phones, who are watching things on their phone that are just mind-blowing. They should not have anything to do with these things on their phones. And it's society telling you it's okay. Yes, we're going to legalize marijuana because it has no effect on you forever. It'll do nothing to you. It'll just help you as medicine. And one thing leads to the other, and as most of you know, marijuana is the gateway, along with cigarettes, to heavy consumption of drugs. I was there. I smoked pot for the first time when I was in fourth grade, folks. So I'm telling you this to help you. Don't take the path I took. And you might say, well, what I'm doing isn't going to lead me to drugs or alcohol, but it's breaking your compass. Soap operas. Reading all these things and, and the dating games that they have on TV where they, where one guy is picked amongst 500 girls or something. Watching all the things and there's another thing on TV that I have to, every time I hit the channel, naked and afraid. Really? What is the world trying to teach us? If I was naked, I would be afraid too. <laughs> I would be. I would be. But are you understanding what I'm saying? Is there any value to this? Zero value. God wants us, holy and pure, to have a relationship with him because he loves us, because he cares for us. And my encouragement to us today is let's get together with God. Let him speak to us. Let him guide us. And you'll find that you'll have less complications with your neighbor because you'll understand where they're coming from you'll understand that they need to be loved when you disagree with them. And it's not that we should hate the people that don't line up with us. It's that we should love them more. I don't get into arguments with people over politics. I don't get into arguments with people over their belief on abortion or homosexuality. I love them more. I try to show them what the Word of God says. That's all I can do. I'm not going to tell them what I think, and maybe I'll throw some of that in there sometime. But the Word of God is what guides me. And my encouragement to you is that get in your word, pray with the Lord, and let him be the guide of your life.
Amen? God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. Amen. <laughs>